past six weeks. We've been getting together on Sunday evenings and looking at the high and holy calling of eldership. We've noted that servanthood is the basis of all spiritual leadership. We've spent several weeks together examining in detail what are the qualifications of an elder and what are they supposed to do. Last week we talked about the special joint ministry, the special relationship that exists between shepherds and their congregation, how they're called together in a practical one another ministry to fulfill joint ministry one with another and share the load of evangelism, the load of discipleship. But tonight, we're going to turn the spotlight from the Word of God from elders to the wives of elders. We're going to ask a question. The question we're going to ask and answer is, what are elders' wives supposed to be like? Six weeks we've been pounding away from the Scriptures with regard to the role of elders themselves. Tonight we're going to look at elders' wives. You know, all around us, our culture is bombarding us with images of youth and beauty. Everywhere you look, that is the message that continues to come across. You have to be young and you have to be attractive if you want to be successful in life. Our culture is awash in sensuality. Unfortunately, many women have found themselves carried along with this tide. But a long time ago, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 31, verse 10, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. That is a counter-cultural message. Tonight we're on a mission. We're on a mission to locate a woman of substance. Not a woman of fluff, not a woman that everything is on the outside, but a woman who is something on the inside. Remembering that man looks on the outside, but God looks where? On the heart. Paul gives us in the passage before us tonight 11 key characteristics. That's way too many, but I didn't write it. 11 11 key characteristics to look for so that we will know a woman of substance when we see her. Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Let's get a running start at the text tonight. Paul left Titus on the island of Crete. Tells us there in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains. Appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Paul left Titus there to establish the church, to build up the church. Almost immediately, Titus is confronted here by false teachers. Notice verse 10, it says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced. 
because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. There's real opposition on Crete for Titus. False teachers abounded, and it was up to Titus to set in order the things that remained to confront this false teaching. How is he to do that? The way that false teaching is always confronted with the word of truth, right? It's with the word of truth. Look at chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1. It says, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. This opening clause here in chapter 2 really is an introduction for all of what goes on here in chapter 2. The whole section dealing with practical virtues, with the outworking of doctrine, sound theology in a person's life, brings about practical virtue that runs counter to what the false teachers were professing. Notice here in chapter 2, and this is just overview to get a a flavor of what's going on here. Notice that Paul addresses various groups in the church. Do you see this? Beginning in verse 2, he, he's speaking to older men. Verse 3, older women. Verse 4, younger women. Verse 6, younger men. Verse 9, bond slaves, servants, slaves. All of these different groups within the church are addressed one after another. All that so that Titus might set in order the things that remain, so that he might teach sound doctrine, so that he might silence, verse 11 again, chapter 1, those who are upsetting whole families. They, they have to be silenced. And the only way they can be silenced is the truth of the Word of God has to be brought to bear on them. This is a present imperative, really, that opens the clause here. It's the idea of continuing action. An imperative is a command. This is not an option for you. Titus, but as for you, speak and keep on speaking, is the point. Don't give up, Titus. If you are contradicted, don't back away, but keep on giving them the truth. Just pour it out. Pour it out. Speak and keep on speaking the things which are fitting. Do you see that? Fitting for sound doctrine. Prepo is the... Greek verb here, it, it means fitting, or it means suitable, it means proper, it means to be conspicuous, to stand out, all those nuances. You are to speak and to keep on spe speaking that which stands out against the false doctrine. You are to speak sound doctrine, Titus, sound doctrine. Healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine. Hugiano. It means sound. It means healthy. We get the English word hygiene from the Greek verb. You are to speak hygienic doctrine. How's that? This is one of Paul's favorite expressions in the pastoral epistles. The idea of sound doctrine. It is to correct, it is, it is to bring things back into line, it is to cure the disease of the soul. 1 Timothy 4.6, he uses it. 2 Timothy 4.3, Titus here, 1.9, 2.1. Sound doctrine, 
Titus. Speak it and keep on speaking it. Every opportunity you get, it it sounds familiar, doesn't it, to 2 Timothy. What did he tell him there? Be ready what? In season and out of season. All the time, in other words. Keep on giving them the truth. Because that's the only thing. They need massive doses of medicine, Titus. You are a doctor of the soul. And so you just keep on filling the prescription. You don't let them say, I've taken my 10 days worth, I'm done. No, you just keep on filling the prescription. You keep on giving it to them and you give it to them and you give it to them and you give it to them. That's the only way to counteract what's going on. Healthy doctrine, sound doctrine. Not just that fills people's minds. It has to move from up here to where? Down here and then out through the hands, doesn't it? Yeah. It has to manifest itself in the midst of the congregation. Among older men, among older women, among younger women, among younger men, among the slaves of the congregation. All the sound doctrine should work itself out in particular ways. And they're not the same ways for each group. Right belief generates right behavior. The engine that pulls the train of behavior is the engine of theology. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. You have to believe right about God in order to behave right towards God. If your mind is filled with ungodly thinking, your behavior will reflect ungodliness. That is a biblical principle. So what follows for us here in the text, and we're only going to have a chance to look at a few verses, and we're not going to spend forever here, but what follows in the text is Paul's explanation of how sound doctrine works itself out. There is a ladies' Bible study beginning just next month dealing with Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through... uh, Wherever it ends up there, seven. No, sorry, six, five. There we go. Tonight, I'm, I'm just going to give an overview. I'm going to kind of give you a running start at it, ladies. I know some of you are here. I've been told that close to 60 ladies have signed up for this study. There are various studies that are meeting. So I'm gonna, just going to give you a running start at it. Now, guys, you can't check out. Okay, this is not time for you to check out. Just like your wives didn't check out over the last six weeks when I was yapping at you. Okay, you can't check out now either. Can't check out either. But let's just get a quick overview here. Look at the beginning in verse 2. Paul says, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. The older men of the congregation, Paul says, have to have a character that manifests itself in a certain way. They have to be temperate, he says. The, the idea is sober in their judgment. They have to be dignified. It will not do to have them to be silly or frivolous in their lifestyle. This is not to characterize an older man of God. They are to be sophrone, means sensible. Important word, by the way. It's going to recur over and over in this passage. It means in complete mastery of oneself, the curbing of one's desires or impulses, a sound and balanced judgment. That's all wrapped up in the term sophrone or sensible. In fact, look over with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and note something here. Verse 2. 
He has to be prudent. Same word, it's used over there. He has to be prudent. Okay? An elder has to, has to have this characteristic of his life. It's the mark of maturity, is what Paul is saying. Older men in the faith should be men of maturity. They should, they should show maturity in their lives. Sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. These virtues should be clearly evident in an older man's life. And, and Paul's going to use this as a springboard now to deal with the next group in the church, which is where we really want to concentrate tonight. But the point that I want you to see is these are not unattainable characteristics. These are not characteristics that, that only a few can reach to. These are to be taught to all that all might attain to these levels. These are within reach. They're within reach of older men. And as we'll see, they're within reach of older women and younger women. This is what it means to put off the old man and to put on the new. So older women, verse 3. Likewise, do you see it? You see that word there, likewise? In the same way as the older men, Paul's saying. Healthy doctrine should manifest itself in a certain distinctive lifestyle. Older men should be characterized by these things, and he lists them. Likewise, in the same way, older women should be characterized by, and he'll give the list. This is what it means to be mature in Christ for a woman. Now, what are these? What are these distinctives? As I said, there are 11 key characteristics of what it means to be a woman of substance, and they're going to be outlined for us here. The first four are spoken of older women. They're said to be the possession. That's what an older woman should possess. And then there are seven more that, are, that the older women are supposed to teach the younger women. But you can't teach what you don't what? What you don't have. So by extension, an older woman, a mature woman of Christ, should have all 11 of them. The four that he specifically speaks of of her and the seven that she's to teach others. It's to all come together in a package. This is not a do as I say, not as I do kind of teaching methodology. This is just the opposite. This is a do as I do kind of teaching. Do as I do. Now, as I, I noted for you here, there are four to begin with of older women. There are two positive characteristics and two negative characteristics. First off, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior. Reverent in their behavior. This is a compound word that he gives us. It's made up of two words, herios, which means holy, and prepo, and we just talked about that verb. It, it means to stand out. It means to be conspicuous. It means to be proper or suitable or fit. What Paul is communicating here is that older women in their behavior should carry themselves in a, in a way commensurate with a holy woman, a godly woman. You should be able to look at somebody's, an older woman's life, and you should see godliness. You should see someone who has been walking with Christ for a long time, and it should be apparent in how they carry themselves. That's what Paul's saying. They are not to be conformed to their culture, but instead they are to be conformed to the Word of God. They are to be reverent. Be reverent. 
Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you know it. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And here it is. Do not be what? Conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Older women are not to be conformed to this world. We noted as we began that this world is awash in sensuality. That the message that is repeatedly given and through all of the various forms of public media is that young and beautiful is where it's at. And the Apostle Paul says, no, that's not where it's at. And an older woman shouldn't have bought into that lie. She should have grown sufficiently in Christ to be able to separate it out, the truth from the lie. I better insert parenthetically here before I get into trouble. He's not saying, and I'm certainly not saying, that an older woman can't be attractive. I'm not dealing with that. What I'm saying is that it can't be focused on the outside, on the externals. It's, it's an issue of the heart. Reverent in their behavior. Look at the negative one here. Not malicious gossips. Diablos in the Greek. It's the same word that's used for whom? The devil. They are not to be devilish. The devil is the accuser of the brethren, isn't he? He's a gossip. He's a slanderer. So older women, there's no place for gossip in their lives. They need to have learned to tame the tongue, the apostle says. We're told in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 27 that we're not to give any place to the devil at all. And in fact, over in chapter 6 and verse 11, we're to stand firm against his schemes. Gossip has no place in the life of a woman of God. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, it's not that men are incapable of gossip. They're certainly capable of it. Lest I get myself in trouble here. It seems to be a uniquely feminine problem. There is in the scriptures, a, there seems to be this evidence that women tend in this direction. I think men do damage with their fists. Women do damage with their tongues. So a mature woman is to have control of her tongue, the apostle says. He goes on next. He says she's not to be enslaved to much wine. She's not to be a drunk She's not to be under the influence of intoxicating substances. Simple as that. Her life needs to be free of these entanglements. Fourth, she's to be characterized by teaching what is good. Do you see that? It's another compound word. I think Paul made up this word, by the way. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. He sort of put this word together, and it, and it means Teaching what is good or good teaching. This is what to characterize their life. They are to be passing on the sound doctrine that Titus is passing on to them. Now, over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, the Apostle Paul prohibits, doesn't he? Let me look there. We've got a gazillion minutes here to go through this. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
verse 9 says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Why, Paul? For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, sanctity with self-restraint. Paul has prohibited the official teaching office of the church. He's prohibited women from occupying that office. He says that that is an office to be held by the elders. And he tells us in the next chapter that elders have to be the husbands of one wife. It is a male position. It's rooted in creation order all the way back to Adam and Eve. God has set it up that way. So in what way are the older women to teach the younger women? What is it? How do you fulfill his command here to teach what is good? If, if you can't stand behind this desk, if you can't have this microphone, ladies, how do you do it? And what is it that the older women are to be teaching the younger women? I mean, is Paul envisioning an older woman teaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible? I doubt it. I seriously doubt it. That type of teaching belongs with the elders of the church. Is he expecting the older women to teach the younger women systematic theology? I doubt it. I doubt it very much. I think the answer to the question of these questions of what is it that they're to teach and in what format are they to teach it is answered really in the following two verses here. Teaching what is good, verse 4, that they may, so that, it's a, called a hina clause in the Greek, it's a purpose clause and it points backwards to the expression of teaching what is good. The good teaching, the sound doctrine that is to be transmitted from older women to younger women is, is laid out by the Apostle Paul here in, in seven attributes. We'll look at those in a minute. There are seven attributes, and just if you're making notes here, write this down. They fall into four categories, four general areas of life in which the teaching is to go on. And, and this helps answer the question, by the way, of what is it they are to teach and how are they to teach it? They're to teach family attitudes. They're to teach personal piety. They're to teach home activities, and they're to teach about the marriage. As an elder in this church, I can address those issues from the Scriptures. And as they present themselves in the Scriptures as we're working through a text, I will teach those issues. But I can only get to a certain level in a general crowd of this size or bigger, there's only so much application that I can make. Necessarily, the application is broad in general. There are areas that it would not be appropriate. It would, it would not 
be good decorum for me to get into and to talk about. There are things that I have no understanding of at all anyway. So I can give general teaching. I can give general exhortation. But when you get down to the specifics, to the rubber meets the road, to the how does it work out? That's where an older woman comes in. That's where an older woman can come in and help. Notice, so that they may encourage the younger women. Do you see that? Sopranizo. It's a, it's a cognate of the, the adjective, sophron, that means sensible. These words are all tied together here. The idea is that the older women are to train, to advise, to teach the younger women to be sensible with regard to their spiritual duties. There is a discipleship, really, that he's talking about here. A making of disciples. Go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Make disciples. Women can have an incredible discipleship-making role. Just because the role of the teaching pastor or elders is prohibited them to them by the scriptures does not mean they are cut off or relegated to some second-class status. Not at all. There is much to be taught. But it needs to be done within God's ordained boundaries and in God's way. So they need to, so for Nidzo, they need to encourage or call to the senses, call to their senses the younger women. And as I said, it breaks down, there are seven characteristics here. The four originally plus these seven makes how many? Good, you're still awake. But they're generally grouped in four areas. So the first area is what I would call family attributes. Family attributes. What is it that they're to encourage the younger women to do? You see it? To love their whom? To love their husband. To be a husband lover. It's another compound word. This whole text is full of all kinds of compound words here. Philandros is the, is the word, and it's, it's made up of andros for man or husband, and phileo, which is a certain kind of Greek love, isn't it? It's not the deep love of agape. It's not the romantic love of eros. It's phileo, which is a family love. It's a family love. It's a love that expresses itself in affection, in a befriending kind of love, in a caring attitude. What the Apostle Paul says is that the older women are to teach the younger women and they're to model for the younger women how to care for a husband. Put it in a nutshell. How to care for your husband. That's what you're to teach the younger women. And of course, that must mean that you must be demonstrating what on your own. Care for a husband. Care for a husband. What if you don't know how to do it? Can you learn such things? I think implicitly in the text, the answer is yes, you can. You can. You can be trained to do this. And in fact, you 
need to be trained to do this. This does not come naturally. If this were natural for the majority of younger women, then the Apostle Paul would not have to give this imperative here, would he? He wouldn't have to tell the older women that you need to teach the younger women how to care for a husband if it was obvious how to do it. So there's something here that has to be passed on. This is where that Titus 2 study is going to be so great. It's going to get really practical, I'm sure. And I'm just going to keep my toes right out of it. I've never cared for a husband, by the way. And I don't intend to. But you can train yourself to love somebody, can't you? You can do that. You can train yourself to put their interests ahead of your own. What was the passage that Dennis read for us before prayer? Didn't it come from Philippians 2, right? We are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We're not to look out merely for our own interests, but we're to be looking out for the interests of others. How do you train yourself to care for a husband? You train yourself to care for a husband by putting his interest before yours, before your own. You think the best of a person. You always give them the benefit of the doubt. You pray for that person. You do nice things for that person, even when you don't want to. Unless that sounds impossible, it's really nothing more than the apostle says that we all have to do what? For each other. It's just practicing one another's. That's all it is. It's not some higher standard that you've got to achieve. It's a simple standard that we're all to achieve. It just needs to be worked out in a marriage relationship. Encourage the younger women to love their husbands. Next. To love their children. To be a child lover. Isn't that interesting? I mean, isn't there a natural affection between a mother and her child? The answer is yes. Nod your heads up and down. Yes, there is. There absolutely is. So it's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than that. I think it has to do with caring and cultivating a young life. I think that's sort of the gist of what an older woman would pass on to a younger woman. I mean, I can remember when our first was born. We were in Ohio. We were young, 24 years old. Came home from the hospital with this package. I turned the box over and over, and there were no instructions anywhere. <laughs> we, we were young, and we didn't have any family. We were 750 miles from home. It was hard. It was hard. We really could have used some help. But God's grace, she's turned out really well. But it was really hard. How do you care for a young life? How do you cultivate that young life that's been entrusted to you? I, I think implicit in this is the fact that moms have a very important role in child raising. Dads have a have an important role too. They have a, a role of sort of oversight, a pastoral role, a, a shepherding role. They're, they're the family priest. But let's face it, dad's gone most of the time, isn't he? I mean, he gets up in the morning and he goes to work somewhere if it's out to milk the cows. He, he's off to do something. Mom has tremendous influence in young lives. She is there with them. 
So the raising of godly children is very much her responsibility. Very much. And the young ones need help from the older ones, from the more mature ones. Because they don't come home from the hospital with instructions. They need help. That's where the older ladies can help. Next, encourage these younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. Verse 5, to be sensible. Guess what that Greek word is? Sophron, you're right. It was right on the tip of your tongue. All over again, teach them to be in mastery of themselves, curbing their desires, their impulses, sound and balanced in their judgment. It's amazing how often Paul uses this word in just this short section. It just rolls through over and over and over again. Be sensible. It's an issue of personal piety. It needs to be taught. It needs to be modeled. Next, teach them to be pure. Teach them to be pure. Teach them to be holy. This is a, a term that relates specifically to sexual purity. It has the idea of chaste. It's a word you don't hear much anymore, do you? To be chaste. To be modest. To be innocent. These things need to be taught. They were a problem on Crete 2,000 years ago. They are a problem in Southern California today. How does a young girl know how to dress? Just get, I'm going to get about as practical as I can get before I'm in trouble. How do they know what's appropriate and what's not appropriate? It begins first with mom. Mom needs to have these things worked out and then work them out for their daughters. There is no room for flirtation. There is no room for immodest dress. There is no room for fantasies. All of that stuff should be put away. Woman of substance should be pure in body, mind, and spirits. This is what should characterize a woman of substance. You have to ask yourself, or at least I have to ask you, Ladies, what are you putting into your minds? What is it that you are feeding your minds on? What are you reading? When there are a lot of romance novels written and sold, aren't they? I can assure you the men are not buying them. Be careful what you read. Be careful what you read. What are you watching? On television, what's going in? Be aware. Be chaste. I like that word. Be chaste in your life. Older women, teach it to the younger women. Mothers, teach it to your daughters. Maybe you're saying here, this is a good time to say this, maybe you're, you're thinking, well, I'm not an older woman yet. Maybe you're not. Maybe God has given you a daughter, though. And so to that daughter, you are an older woman. There is application here that at all levels, at all levels, personal piety. Next, home activities. This would be characteristic number nine if you're keeping score here. They are to be sensible. They are to be pure. 
They are to be workers at home. There's probably no other phrase that I could speak that would get me closer to being in hot water, is there? I mean, let's just all acknowledge it right up front, right? Isn't this a problem clause for a lot of people? Why is that? Why is this one put the hair on the people's back of people's necks, make it stand straight up? Workers at home, it says. Devoted to home duties would be another way to translate that. Devoted to the activities of being a homemaker. You know, next to Paul's instructions for a, a woman to submit, which, by the way, are also in this passage and we'll have to get to. Next to those instructions, I can't think of anything else I could say that would get me closer to being in hot water. That's a shame. That's a shame. Let me just say this. And I've been thinking about this all week and praying about this because I don't want to say something that's not true. I don't want to go beyond what God says. This is not about my opinions on such things. It's just about the Word of God. And so I want to be restrained, but I want to be direct. Is that fair? Here it is. Ladies, are you ready? I don't believe that Paul is prohibiting out, working outside of the home. I don't see that here in the text. I know that some people do hold that conviction, and that's between them and the Lord. I don't think it's prohibited. But I think there's a very strong caution that comes along with this. And here it is. If your home is out of control because of your outside activities, you have a problem. You have a problem in priorities. your home is out of control, something has to change. You have neglected somehow what is fitting for, verse 1, sound doctrine. And that looks different, I think, in different homes. It looks different among different women. Some women are incredibly organized and productive and energetic and can handle multitasking kind of things, which, by the way, I cannot do. I'm terrible. If I'm sitting in a room and the TV's on, I can't talk. I, you know, I can barely eat. <laughs> well, I can eat and watch TV. But, I mean, but, but some people really can, you know, they can do a lot of things at the same time. If God has wired you up that way, praise God. Just please, don't neglect your first priority. Husbands, it's time to talk to you, too, in these same matters. Because you know what? Many times it's the husband that is the driving force behind this. Many times it's the husband who is pushing the wife out into the labor force. If your wife is... I'm going to really... I'm going to step out here. You ready? If your wife is working, gentlemen, because you want more toys... Something is seriously wrong. You need to step back. You need to evaluate your life in the light of the Word of God, and you need to make appropriate adjustments. Don't let the culture squeeze you in and sweep you along. Home activities. Number 10, 
Another home activity is you are to be kind. Do you see that? Older women to teach the younger women, workers at home, and kind. Agathos in the Greek is usually translated good, but it can denote the idea of kindness, and I think that's a good translation here. It's the idea of kindness. You know, and again, I can't speak from first-hand knowledge, so I'm speaking from the scriptures and, and being married for almost 24 years. When a, when a, a mother is devoted to her home, and she's involved in the activities of her home, she's sort of absorbed in them. And it demands a self-sacrificing attitude. It, it demands a, a giving and a giving and a giving, particularly when the rugrats are really small. And what can happen is that can bring a temptation for irritableness. Fatigue produces irritableness, doesn't it? There's a harshness that can come at a time when you're just, you're exhausted. You think you see one more spilled milk on the floor, you are going to lose it. If those kids won't, if they won't wipe their feet, I have told them and told you to wipe your feet. Noise, confusion, all of that stuff, it can, can make you irritable. Can make you irritable. Older women need to teach younger women that in the press of life, kindness has to characterize them, particularly kindness within the home. They need to be benevolent, they need to be gracious, they need to be heartily doing what is good and beneficial to others, particularly their own households. I mean, we could flip over to Proverbs 31, couldn't we, and read it. I mean, Paul is just reflecting on what Solomon had written. He's not making this stuff up. Be a good worker at home and be kind about it. Find your joy there. If you have energy and inclination for things above and beyond that, paid or unpaid, do them unto the Lord. Finally, number 11, he deals with the marriage. Sensible, chaste, workers at home, kind, here it is, being subject to their own husbands. Being subject to their own husbands. This is a, this is a present middle participle, so what? So what? Well, actually, it does mean a lot. It's helpful to know that. It could be translated, and well translated, I think, continually submitting themselves. Present tense gives us the idea of a continual action. There's the middle voice says that it's something that the, that the subject of the verb is involved in the activity of the verb. That was about as clear as mud, wasn't it? I told you, it was bonehead English. I'm just amazed that I got as far as I did. Submit yourself. Ongoing call for this. There's a voluntary aspect that comes out of this. Present middle, middle parsable, it, it gives us a voluntary nuance to it. This is not a top-down command. This is a, a voluntary 
submission. Understanding God's order of the creation for men and women. I mean, way back in Genesis, God said to Adam, I will make you a what? A helper or a helpmate suitable, corresponding to you. I mean, it's wired into us, even though the culture would deny it at every turn. But there is a voluntary aspect to it. It's not the word obedience, by the way. Kupatasso is the Greek verb. Mistaken notion among some that that's what Paul's calling for, but he does, he's not calling for that at all. It's being subject to whom? Their own husbands. That is very important. Very, very important. Women are not created by God to be in a second-class position under men, to walk around in submission behind men five paces behind. Some silly way like that. The general structure and order of society set up by God in, in the beginning when he brought, created Eve from Adam's rib and brought her to him. And he said, this is now your helpmate. There was a structure established. One woman and one man together for life in a certain relationship. It's part of the household structure. Women are not called in the Bible to submit to all men generally. There's no call for that. This is also not speaking at all to a woman's intellect, education, sufficiency in doing any one of a number of tasks. It's just a, an ordering of the universe, the way God has put it together. And by the way, Christ is in submission to whom? The Father. Yet he is equal with the Father, right? I and the Father are, are one. Jesus Christ was not afraid of being in submission to God. There are calls in the scripture to female submissiveness to the male instruction and leadership of the church. That's true. Oh, I guess I want to, side note, make that point. I mean, we looked at one of them earlier, 1 Timothy 2.11, right? To quietly receive instruction with all submissiveness. 1 Corinthians 14.34 is another passage. But they're, they're relating to the roles of leadership within the church. That's what that's talking about. But the biblical doctrine of submission is a woman to her husband. A woman to her husband. And that brings me to a, a point of caution, I guess I would say. One of the dangers of a woman working outside of the home is that it potentially puts her in a point of conflict. She is biblically called to be in submission to whom? Her husband. As an employer, she is also biblically called to be in submission to whom? Her employer or her boss. What happens when they conflict? It can put you in some difficult situations. 
Why must a woman, back to verse 5, be in submission or subject to her own husband? Paul gives us the reason here. He gives us another henna clause, another purpose clause, so that, what? The word of God may not be literally blasphemed, but the word of God may not be blasphemed. An unsubmissive Christian wife is a spiritual disconnect. It demonstrates an unsanctified part of her life. In an older woman, these issues should have long been resolved. They are to be teaching the younger women. Younger women learn the lesson early. Learn it in the home. Moms, dads with daughters, teach it at home. Maybe I should speak specifically to dads here. This is an important issue. You're going to walk down the aisle someday, Lord willing, with that young lady on your arm, and you're going to hand her off to a man. Have you prepared her for that task? If she's not in submission to you, how in the world will she ever be in submission to her own husband? These are serious matters, very serious matters. Paul says that when a Christian woman is acting and living in an unsubmissive way to her own husband, it opens the gospel up to blasphemy. The unbelievers will speak against Christ because of it, he says. I mean, typically the world judges the validity of religion not by its doctrines, but by its effect upon people. Unsanctified lives are not good advertisements for Christ. Yeah, try to wrap this up here. Just say that the nuances of this will be worked out. I'm, I'm sure. I'm very excited, by the way. Almost 60 ladies coming together to, to study these things in four groups, I think it is. Debbie, is that right? Yeah. There will be good opportunity to talk about practical things. And then hopefully when they come out of those groups, there will be a, a trust relationship established to the point where that ladies in the congregation can admonish and encourage one another to grow in godliness in these things. And we don't want to blaspheme the Word of God, do we? No. No, we don't. We speak to elders' wives directly here. Ladies, you can undo your husband's ministry by a failure to act in accordance with these Injunctions by the Apostle Paul. These are spoken to define what it means to be a woman of substance, to be mature in Christ. You can beautify your husband's ministry, the proverb says, or you can be the foolish woman who tears it down with her own hands. It lies with you. What is an elder's wife like? She's reverent. She holds her tongue. She's sober-minded. She's devoted to her husband and her children. She's self-controlled. She's chaste. She's kind. She's submissive to her own husband. And she's involved in the lives of the younger women 
of the fellowship. That's what an elder's wife looks like. It's a high and holy calling. It's a calling that cannot be achieved without massive doses of the grace of God. But it is very much achievable by His grace. You're all so serious looking at me. I wish I could tell a joke and lighten it up, but I don't know any. And the ones I know, I always forget the punchline. These, these are serious matters. These are serious matters. But be encouraged in these things, ladies. Men, pray for your, pray for your wives. Pray for your wives. These are difficult things for them. But they're doable. By God's grace. Let's pray. Our Father, it has been a sobering look. Our Father, there is a certain measure of discomfort that's created when we welcome the spotlight of the Word of God to shine into our own lives. Because, our Father, we confess before you that there is none of us that has it all together. Our Father, just like the qualifications of the elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, it is not a standard of perfection, for if it were, no man could achieve it. But it is a general statement of a man's character. It is the direction of his life. It is what he longs for. It is what he works towards. It is what he prays for. And it is what, by your grace, over time, he can look back and see measured growth in. And Lord God, the same is true for what we consider tonight for women of substance. It is not a standard of perfection, our Father, because there would be none here who could achieve it. But it is the longing, I know, of many hearts. I pray, our Father, that you would help them. I pray that the next six weeks as they meet together would be a time of great encouragement. That relationships would be built that would be long-lasting. That they would be getting below the surface into each other's lives and encouraging and exhorting and instructing and giving practical helps in these matters, that, that those who are older and have more experience in these things would help the younger women, and, and together this fellowship would mature in this matter. Lord God, we don't want the Word of God to be blasphemed here. We want the Word of God to be exalted. We pray for your help in doing that. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.